Hello, Broken Laces listeners. Welcome back to the show. On today's uh, podcast, Jesse Grossman joins us, and she is the U.S. Program Manager for the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, also known as Y2Y. Y2Y's mission is to connect and protect habitat across the 2,000-mile corridor, for those in Canada, 3,200 kilometers, and inspire others to engage in similar work. Jesse's conservation experience and academic background integrates forest ecology, biodiversity, species conservation, and climate change into collaborative projects in forest and watershed restoration, wildland protection, and human-wildlife coexistence. She currently lives in Idaho and enjoys incorporating her connection to its people and landscape into her works with Y2Y. Jesse joins the pod today to talk about this awesome Y2Y initiative, the complexities of managing many relationships across hundreds of parties, across multiple jurisdictions, and the wonderful Rocky Mountain Rage that she monitors in the Idaho, Montana region. And I'd love for you to learn more about Y2Y and the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative. So let's hop into it. to the podcast here at Broken Laces. We have Jesse Grossman on the on the call today in this episode. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Hi, thanks so much for having me. There's a theme going on in this season. I appreciate all of those who I kind of cold call email. I, I, I ran across uh, the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative, I think on a LinkedIn post, maybe I was on a webinar and I said, wow, this is just an incredible story, an incredible challenge and set of projects that you and the team are have taken on and just said we got to we got to get some exposure for these folks and so happy to happy to be chatting to you about field conservation and I'm I'm kind of curious how did you get to that point of kind of working for for Y to Y Yeah, I do uh my education and background uh is in the conservation world pretty much ever since I got out of college and and I think from the observing eye seems sort of like a straight line. Um, but I think it, it sort of goes back for me to my childhood. I grew up in the Bay Area in California. And while a lot of people think of um, the San Francisco Bay Area as being an urban, busy place, uh, it has a lot of nature very very close to the communities of, of that area and um, growing up I would spend hours uh, in this kind of dank creek that was uh, by our house growing up and uh, and then as I got older and kind of in high school years you know found myself heading just out our front door um, onto trails that I uh, had kind of realized were so close by and um, if I was having a bad day or uh, just struggling with something, you know, I would just go out and walk in, in the hills um, on the coast of California. And so I think from an early age, I felt very connected to nature and I was fortunate growing up that um, I had such close access to it. Um, and so that was sort of the foundation for me. Uh, and then I think also in my family, um, this idea of service was 
always instilled in us. And I had family members who had made their career doing different um, different acts of service. And so growing up, I think that really influenced my perception of what a successful person did um, was someone who had a passion for something and made their life giving back to it. Um, and so for me, I think I realized kind of as a teenager that um, that for me, that was nature and the outdoors and the environment. And ever since then, I've, I've kind of just run with it. And as you mentioned, uh, I went to college in Montana and I wanted to just get out of California and go to the wildest place I could think of. And and that was Montana. And um, and so that's what brought me to this area and kind of launched me into the work I'm doing now. Yeah. And I'm thinking, uh, I'm looking at my bookshelf here, looking at Richard Louvre, uh, Last Child in the Woods. I'm searching for oh, ecological literacy by, I believe, uh, last name or for, for getting his name. But it's really speaking to the importance of of children getting out in nature and, and kind of gaining that, that naturalistic intelligence and seems like it had an impact for you in terms of how it shaped your decisions when you went to college and how it shaped inevitably where you, where you ended up working. It did. And, and I would say it truly changed my life. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to nature-based education from elementary school um, all, all the way through high school. Uh, and I am not in my, no, I don't do this in my professional work through Y to Y directly, but um, just personally, I such an advocate for uh, for that type of work and for getting kids outside because um, it it did have a, a big impact on me and and who I am today. We've had you know conservationists on the show, but more from a kind of a policy angle. Um, and I think you're probably the first that's that's more from the field angle. So let's dive a little bit into the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative. How how did that idea come up? Um, kind of what's the mission and, and key programs and projects uh, that the team's working on? So the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative was founded in 1993. Uh, so we've, we've been around for a while. Uh, and our mission is to connect and protect habitat from Yellowstone to the Yukon so people and nature can thrive. And so if you Imagine the Yellowstone National Park area and the Wind River Range in Wyoming. Our work kind of starts there at that southern anchor and extends 2,100 miles north to just below the Arctic Circle um, in the Yukon. And along that range is uh, the spine of the Rocky Mountains and a whole host of uh, diversity of life and human communities um, and, and different things going on in, in this immense and very important region. Yeah, I, lo- I love, so you mentioned one stat. So you've got the, the 2,000 plus miles long. You're, you're obviously connecting two countries, five total United States, two Canadian provinces, two Canadian territories, and over 75 indigenous lands. So kind of a, kind of a big area a big geographical area i welcome welcome all those at, at their laptop to google maps that and kind of look at, at what you're seeing here um but yeah what are what are kind of those key projects that encapsulate such a wide geography so at y2y we 
uh, one of our kind of tenets of our work is that we're a, we are a big tent organization. So um, we have over 25 staff who work across the region, which might sound like a lot, but 25 people over 2,100 miles is, um, uh, there's a lot for each of us yeah. to work on, a lot of space. Yeah. And so um, one of the, the sort of principles that Y2Y was founded on is um, being this kind of, this vision and this umbrella for um, a lot of different conservation partners, agencies, so state, state and federal agencies like the Forest Service, um, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, uh, and, and pretty much any other partner that would want to, uh, to work with us or that we could help support their work. And so um, while Y2Y is, all, is an organization, it's also a network of partners who are working across this region. And in our work in the United States, we work under four themes. So we work to protect and restore public lands. And I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with what public lands are, but um, national forest lands, uh, national parks, wilderness areas, anywhere that you would kind of could, could get outside and you know wouldn't need to ask someone permission necessarily to go there. Um, is public land and so we, so we work on that because that usually provides really great secure core wildlife habitat and then we also work to conserve private lands in key linkage areas in valley bottoms that usually connect those big public lands that are very rich wildlife habitat those lands function best and wildlife do best uh, in them when they're connected. And so we work on private lands um, in that way. We help make roads safer for people and wildlife. So similarly, uh, wildlife need to get across roads to access habitat that they need. So we work on things like wildlife crossing structures, overpasses and underpasses. And then we also work to help reduce wildlife conflicts between people and wildlife by helping people have the tools that they need to live, work, and play safely in places like grizzly bear country, where sometimes you need to put a little bit of extra thought into uh, how, how you do things there. Yeah. So the theme we're going to keep hearing is this this connection or, or network. And it seems like not only is Y2Y working on connecting landscapes and corridors, but in essence, you are serving as a body where you're connecting partners, uh, those working uh, to, to enable this vision. Um, so, so there's kind of some biomimicry in action where you're, you're, you're trying to drive connection in nature, but you're doing that by connecting people and organizations. That's exactly right. Yeah, love that. Because, and, and for the audience, like when you're thinking about wildlife, what, why, I, I think it's pretty obvious, but I want you to expand a little bit. Why is it important to have connected landscapes? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think it, it is obvious in some ways and, and it's not in other ways, because I think sometimes we can end up thinking that, oh, wildlife live over there, <laughs> you know, right. and, and I think that, um, that, 
when we approach wildlife that way and when we think that way, you know, uh, they don't do very well. And so we're, as you were saying, working on um, doing the opposite and keeping wildlife connected. And so um, the reason why it's important is because wildlife has shown us that they need a lot of space to really do well. Um, and some examples of this are, you know, there's been a couple of different grizzly bears in um, Montana that have traveled hundreds of miles uh, up into Canada and back down to, into the United States and just made these really impressive journeys uh, right. across, you know, through places that people would never imagine a, a bear would walk. And as we get more information about wildlife movement, really th through science and through monitoring of, of wildlife, um, through things like radio collar and GPS telemetry and things like that, um, we actually get this picture of, wow, wildlife don't just live in the mountains. They move in these incredible ways. Um, and so once we've seen those big impressive movements, we've also realized that uh, wildlife need different habitats seasonally. And in order to be interconnected and healthy, some wildlife need to be able to, to move those long distances. And so continuing to take grizzly bears as an example, um, we know that when they're in these kind of island populations and they can't go very far, they don't do very well and, and they won't last very long in, in the long term. They need yeah, to be able to actually get out and move and connect and mate with, uh, with neighboring populations. And that means traveling hundreds of miles to do that. Yeah, that population health suffers. And you think, I think you pointed a, a great example of grizzly bears, but wolf packs do the same thing where not only are they territorial, but they move across a lot of spaces. And if they're moving across a lot of spaces that are fragmented by roads or private land or development, that's where you come into play to make sure that those connections allow those different populations move around and, and kind of have those safe corridors. Large carnivores are well known for needing uh, connectivity and other animals that kind of maybe are a little more surprising do as well. We've seen some incredible movement of ungulates, so deer and elk, and even sometimes migrating moose. Oh. Um, and so ungulates definitely need connectivity to survive in the long term in a very similar way that um, that large carnivores do. And now that we're science is kind of learning more about the movement patterns of uh, things like mule deer and um, an elk and pronghorn antelope, there are if people are interested in learning more about this, there's actually all kinds of information online. Um, the path of the pronghorn is a, a great place to start. But just about just how far these animals migrate and where they can go when their migration routes are not obstructed by things you mentioned like development and roads. I want to get to the the topic of the secret sauce for for why to why and I'm I'm kind of projecting the secret sauce because you mentioned you work <laughs> with over 450 partners and you're working across two countries as I mentioned 
uh, a lot of different jurisdictions, public, private, et cetera. Like how, how do you manage all of these stakeholders? How do you get anything done in terms of being that big tent organization? That's a great question. And uh, I think you referred to it this way earlier, but it is kind of like an ecosystem where uh, we're not necessarily, uh, you know, controlling and orchestrating the whole thing, but we are um, uh, a strong player in really a web of, of partners. And I think uh, two things that are really important for working in these kind of multi-jurisdictional networks that are long-term and that have a big vision is um, just being really inclusive and uh, kind of knowing when when and where we're needed and in what way. Um, so a lot of the time we find ourselves asking ourselves, you know, this with this really important issue, is there someone already working on this? Is there a way that we can support that organization to help them be more effective? If no one's working on this, why not? Is there a role for us to play um, in stepping in and uh, and you know filling a need? And I think that just constantly asking ourselves those questions and being really focused on um, on what we do well. And so for Y2Y, that's connectivity. Um, and we stay really focused on connectivity and we have partners all throughout the region who are doing incredible work for conservation that's focused on individual species, that's focused on individual, you know, specific places where they live and all of those partners are so important, but really being, being very focused and very strategic with what we choose to do and why and, and where we choose to, to put our resources and and trusting that and really believing and supporting in our partners who really know what they're doing and that kind of together we can we can make an impact on the landscape. That's kind of the only way to do it. <laughs> Such a big area. The one thing I loved in your answer is that you don't have to own everything. Like you when you're taking on as a big of a project as as Y to Y is, like you can't own everything. And so how do you build those partnerships and it makes a lot of sense? What are some of your favorite uh, projects historically or kind of presently uh, that Y to Y has taken on? Thanks. Yeah, there's so many uh, great projects that that Y to Y has done, and that I've had the the great pleasure of uh, of being part of. One project that we've worked on for the last couple of years um, is a really exciting and fun climate adaptation restoration project, and the very uh, northern top of the Idaho Panhandle, uh, right at the border with British Columbia. And it's in an area where the Kootenai River flows between the two countries. Um, and the project is, is down in the valley bottom that historically uh, would flood seasonally when, when the river flooded. And okay. the, the Kootenai River was dammed um, many years ago. And so the valley has sort of changed from this very dynamic uh, system and dynamic habitat and ecosystem to a pretty static one that is now, you know, uh, been converted to extremely productive uh, agricultural lands. And so while, you know, th those lands 
sustain um, food and livelihood for people in this region. And, and that's incredibly important. The project that we worked on was to restore the, that sort of habitat that mimicked those historic flood cycles in um, sort of a key piece of land in the Kootenai Valley that is really important for wildlife, including grizzly bears, to move back and forth between the US and Canada. And our approach to the project was not only looking backward historically to what did this area look like in the past, but it was also to look forward and to say, how can we help this area be really resilient to the effects of climate change moving forward? And so for us, that meant changing the topography actually and building some kind of small hills and then planting trees on those hills uh, so that when the trees mature, they'll create more shade in the area. Um, and then also designing these seasonal ponds and stream beds to hold water longer in the season so that there would be more moisture in the area, um, cooler air temperatures. And we're actually continuing to monitor the project moving forward to see if it affects things like um, how long flowers are in bloom in the spring. Can we actually extend the bloom time of flowers to ensure that pollinator habitat is, is still there? And so that's a really exciting project that includes kind of historical restoration, connectivity, innovative climate adaptation, and something that I've been really excited to work on. And some just good ongoing field science, it sounds like, too. Definitely. Before we we hop into hiking, because there's a, good, a lot of great, great, great hiking in the area that, that you manage, any ways that the listeners can, can learn more, get involved, anything like that? Oh, definitely. So our website is y2y.net. Uh, so the letter Y, number two, and the letter Y. Um, and if you go to y2y.net slash subscribe, you are welcome to sign up for our newsletter. That's the best way to get updates about what we're doing as an organization. And if you like what you heard about, about Y2Y and are interested in, in getting more involved, um, that's definitely the place to go. I think also for your listeners, one really easy thing you can do to help conservation is if you're hiking in grizzly country, always carry bear spray and know how to use it. And there's plenty of resources for that available online. But if you do, if you can do one thing uh, as a hiker, that is what I would recommend. Good, good segue into into our last question of the show, and I, it's it's the trails and ales segment. And I welcome you to not pick one trail; you can pick an area. Give us some exposure to the area is, is what I'm getting to. And so tell us a little bit about some of either your favorite trails, favorite regions. You work up, as you mentioned, uh, in kind of the northern Montana, as well as the Idaho Panhandle area, if, if I'm correct. So give us, your, give us your favorite region, section, trail, et cetera, and maybe a brewery at the bottom that you would uh, welcome the listeners to go visit. Sure. Well, uh, I would say that the northwest corner of Montana and northern Idaho truly captures my heart when it comes to hiking. If you're looking for something that is a little bit more off the beaten path, uh, this region is your jam. And uh, something that I think 
people don't know about this part of the world maybe is that this is actually the the southern end of the British Columbia Inland Temperate Rainforest um, extends into the U.S. just in this very northwest part of Montana and and northern Idaho and so we have this incredibly rich and incredibly unique ecosystem uh, up, up here and and of course you know well extending into into British Columbia and, and in the Selkirk and the Purcell Mountains so I would I would highly recommend if you love exploring off the beaten path checking out those mountain ranges and then uh, the Cabinet Mountains is another mountain range that um, is part of of this very important region up on the U.S. Canada border and uh, the Cabinet Mountains are just south of a town in Montana called Libby. And there is a sweet brewery in Libby called Cabinet Mountain Brewing. And uh, if you come here for a hiking trip or for any other reason, you should definitely check out that brewery. And I'm Googling Cabinet Mountains just to make sure. Yes, it's like your kitchen cabinets. So if yes. you need to figure out what Je- where's where's Jesse talking about, just Cabinet Mountains as in your kitchen cabinets. And the, the brewery's in Libby, you said. It is. Yep, I see it right there. And that's the Cabinet Mountain Brewery. I love getting these itineraries for myself. I'm like, all right, I can find myself back there and, and go explore some of these ranges. I love that. Well, thank you uh, for your time today. Thank you for sharing the vision mission of the Y2Y, giving us a little exposure to that beautiful section of the country in northwestern Montana and the Idaho panhandle. And uh, yeah, anything else you want to add for the listeners? I think I'd just say thank you so much for having me. It's it's really been a pleasure to have this conversation. And uh, I'm available if folks want to reach out to me and learn more about why to why and how you can get involved. Definitely. And, and same goes for contacting the podcast and I can be a good uh, a shepherd of connecting you with Jesse as well. So Jesse, again, many thanks for coming on. I, I knew I loved this type of initiative. It has the, the appropriate amount of both field science, conservation science, but also a lot of stakeholder management and partnerships. And I just Welcome everybody who's listening to go learn a little bit more about Y2Y. Sign up for that newsletter and, uh, you know, embrace supporting, connecting our wildlife corridors. And I think this is a great organization doing that. So again, thank you, Jesse. Thank you.